Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Good morning. So glad that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 7 as... Our style, just continuing in our study through the letter from Patmos. And we get to a really kind of unique section of Revelation because, uh, and we, we're going to need to tee it up a little bit so we all know where we're going. Uh, this is what's called a parenthetical chapter. And so there's a lot of events that have already taken place, specifically with the seven seals and and all of that that we talked about last week, and we'll kind of rehash that a little bit. And, and then we get to seven, and John just kind of says, you know, hey, we need to stop here because there's other details that are going on that I need to fill you in on. Like this, you're not getting the full story yet. And, and that's a good thing for us because if we would only stick, uh, you know, looking at the seven seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls and we just really focus on God's wrath, we'll forget, I think, some of the main things that he's doing in the midst of that. And it's almost like he has two programs going. It's not just him pouring out his wrath on earth during this tribulation, but it's also get to see his mercy. And that's good for us because if we only look at the wrath of God, we don't see the other things that he's doing in this time, it could really skew our view of God, you know? Uh, and a lot of people think that. Like as we, I even kind of brought up that we'd be going through the book of Revelation. I, I've had a few people like, are you sure about that one right there? Or, you know, because it has that connotation of just being very scary and even us like trying to create graphics. We were looking at others and everything's like red, black, and blood and craziness. And it's like, you know, for me to say it's a book of hope and encouragement and then have this graphic that looks like you just walked into like Friday the 13th movie, you know, that's, that doesn't really fit so well. And the same thing as we're walking through the different events, like some of them are pretty heavy. Some of it's pretty deep and gets, gets real serious real quick, but we also get to see another aspect of who God is and how he's operating in and through this, and so we, we really want to keep our focus on the main things. And so this chapter 7, it's, um, it's not a chronological order. It's almost like John saying, all right, let's stop. I want to fill you in on a lot of details of things that have already happened and they're going to continue to happen. And, and, and these are, I would say, actually more important for us to focus on this morning. It does give us an explanation of two groups of people that we're going to see. Uh, and, and it's very important understanding these two. Probably some of the most uh, misused portions of Scripture when you talk about the cults of Christianity are going to come from this chapter. And we'll walk through that and it'll be a lot of fun. And so if you have your Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 7. And to say, if you, uh, we buy these. The one that I carry, except it doesn't have the cool sticker. Um, but we, we buy the one that I carry. And so if you don't have a physical Bible and you want one, just go into the hub. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything like that. The church buys it. We want to give them away for free. And it's a resource to you. So if you know somebody that would want a Bible or you want to gift a Bible to someone, that is the same resource for you. You can go by, swipe one of those. You're not stealing. Steal from us, not from Walmart, right? And, and we, we really do want you to have a Bible. And see, it's black leather, exactly the one I carry. It's not some like Kmart special recycled newspaper five times over, or, you know, like, so go grab one. There you go. 
Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so we know that this is happening before any of the seals are broken, Before, because we know some of these seals were bringing harm against the earth, and the sea, and vegetation. So before any of that happened, this angel is saying, don't do anything yet until we have sealed these servants of God on their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That's how we know they're two different groups. We just numbered one of them. And when he looked at another group, we can't number them. It's two different groups. And it's from every nation. Another key point. The first group that we numbered, they're all Jewish. This Mixed nations from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so the big million-dollar question, usually anytime you talk about the book of Revelation, one of the big questions is, who are the 144,000? Definitely don't want to Wikipedia that. Don't want to Google it. You're going to get all kinds of answers. You don't want to talk to your Jehovah Witness friends or your Mormon friends or your Muslim friends because you're going to get a slew of different answers. And we simply just need to allow the Word to instruct us who it is. See, because if you ask a Jehovah Witness, they would say the 144,000, there's only 144,000 people that are going to be in heaven. <laughs> How good do you think you really are? Are you going to make the cuts? 
they would say that only 144,000 go to heaven, then everyone else that believes in God, but maybe they weren't up to snuff, they get to live on a paradise-like earth, and those that reject God, they're annihilated, meaning they don't believe in a hell, that nobody's going there. You would just, if you reject God, you're annihilated. And so there's those on earth in a paradise, and then there's only 144,000 that get to go to heaven. If you ask a Mormon, they would say, well, these are priests. They get to serve in the kingdom of God. If you ask a Muslim, they would tell you the 144,000 are those that followed Muhammad. And then you get some really obscure ones. You know, uh, there's, there's one, uh, I say Christian, a cult of Christianity in Russia. Um, and, and they do a lot of body modification to try to fight against their lust. Can I say that? Is that, you, know, you fill in the blank. <laughs> They would say once their numbers hit 144,000, that's when the end will come. It's like, I don't know if you could find five people that would want to modify their body in that manner, but they believe that's what the 144,000 are going to be. So really obscure things. But if we just simply look at the word, and who does the word tell us these people are? They're Jewish sealed servants of God in the tribulation, right? Jewish sealed servants of God in the tribulation. So before the start of the seals, before anything that was happening in the tribulation, any of those events, and we hear that angel saying, hey, before, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed these servants of God on their foreheads. And the question, well, what's that seal on the forehead? I don't know. Is that going to be visible to everybody else, or is that only visible in a spiritual sense? We actually don't know but there's some ceiling to these 144,000 Jewish people. And why is that so specific? Why Jewish people in this time of the tribulation, right? So let's, let's talk a little bit of eschatology here, end times, events, and, and the order of that. Right now we are in what's called the church age. We are the church. And what we've talked about before is in Revelation like 4 and 5, we see the 24 elders around the throne that John knew exactly. Well, that's a representation of the church. So we don't hear from the book of Revelation how the church ends up in heaven. We don't, we don't hear of the rapture in Revelation. The church is simply there at the start of any, or even before the starts of any of the events of the tribulation. So we can differ here. This is one of those theological differences that we can have, and we're going to stay in harmony together. We're not going to allow it to cause division. But I would hold, just as the study of Scripture would lead us, that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. Because when John wants to start talking about the tribulation, the church is already there. So this would be called a pre-tribulation rapture, that we as the church will be caught up, as First Thessalonians tells us, and that we will be with him. And then the events of the tribulation will begin. There's some believe that that'll happen at the midpoints of the tribulation, and some would believe that the church is going to go through all of the tribulation. But when we're reading Revelation, before any of these events start, John says and sees, well, there's the church already. And, and why the idea of these 144,000 being Jewish is so key is because, you know, let's take a little Old Testament history, and we're going to kind of geek out here in a little bit about it all. You know, God is working through the nation of Israel through the Old Testament. And then when Christ comes, he's rejected as their Messiah. All of the prophecies, everything pointing to their Messiah, they reject him. And so God puts Israel kind of on hold. 
And then he starts working and he builds his church. And now there are some that believe that the church replaces all of those promises that God gives Israel. But it's not so. There are some of those promises that God gives Israel that the church, we, cannot fulfill or be fulfilled in and through us. So he puts Israel on hold and he picks up the church. And, and the church is a mystery, not mystical, but a mystery, what Paul would say. Because former generations, they didn't understand that. That's why you're not going to have any reference to the church in the Old Testament. Even hearing Jesus say, I will build. So even in the time of Jesus, Jesus was in the Old Testament. It wasn't until the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that the church started through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so now here's the church age. But then rapture takes the church up. And what's the first thing that we see God doing in the tribulation? Start that seven year. He picks back up Israel. He is working with the Jews again. And so they are sealed which, again, we don't know exactly what that means, but they are protected from the coming judgments that are gonna be poured out, the wrath of God being poured out on earth. They're not gonna to have to endure that personally, which you might think like, oh, that sounds really nice. They don't have to deal with all the, you know, because we'd already read a few of the seals, a fourth of mankind will be killed, and they won't have to endure that. True, but they're definitely gonna get a front row seat and have to watch everything that is going down. And they're not gonna experience any of that. And there's a little bit of precedence to that. Like if you study going back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus, when God poured out the Ten Commandments on Egypt so that he could redeem Israel out of Egypt, there was ten, 10 plagues. Three of them did affect Israel, but seven of them only affected Egypt alone. And so there is a, a sense of that ceiling where God is only wanting to pour out his wrath on those that are not sealed and so these 144 are sealed to keep them from that. And we have that listing of 12 tribes. And if we study in the Old Testament, there's over like 19, all around 20 listings of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's not one other place in Scripture that matches this listing in Revelation. This is a very unique listing. So we're going to geek out on it a little bit, okay? So what do we see unique about this listing? Well, first, very commonly, Judah is named first, even though he wasn't the firstborn. So we know there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob gets renamed Israel because he was fighting with God, put him out of socket, and he calls him Israel, right? So we use those names interchangeably, so we all know who we're talking about. Jacob, Israel, same guy. And Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph, Right? So out of that 12, Judah wasn't the oldest, but we know that the Messiah is going to come from that tribe. That's why it's the lion and the lamb of Judah. And so we see Judah named first. And then a question that we'd have if we'd study some of the Old Testament listings is, where's Ephraim? His name is replaced by Joseph, who would have been his dad. And that's kind of a, a unique thing, because if you remember Joseph, right, this will be on the test Friday, don't worry, you can study up for it. Joseph, there, if you want to pass the test, there's four Ps that you could sum up the life of Joseph. You know, he had his brothers, uh, and he had that dream that they were all going to serve him, and it didn't help that dad gave him a really nice coat of many colors, and kind of he was rubbing it in their faces. So what'd they do? Like any good brothers, you take them and you throw them in the pit, Right? You throw him in a pit. And then when Potiphar came along, they sold him to Potiphar. So Potiphar takes him and he's serving in Potiphar's house. But the problem there is Potiphar had a wife who had the hots. 
for Joseph. And she was trying to get Joseph to sleep with him, and he wouldn't do it. So because of that, he gets thrown into prison. Even being righteous, not sinning, gets thrown into prison for it. So he's in the pit, goes to Potiphar's house, then he goes to prison. Interprets a couple dreams for some people. Works out well for one guy, not so well on the other one. He gets beheaded, right? Love the Old Testament. And then he interprets a couple dreams for Pharaoh, and because of it, he gets to be the prime minister of Egypt, which really is a whole nother sermon that we could talk about the providence of God. Because God wanted to keep Israel. And how is he going to redeem them? How is he going to protect them through all this? Like, he had to get them into the land of Egypt. How is he going to get an, an Egyptian ruler to allow Israel into their land? Well, he's got to get somebody in a high power. Well, why would any pharaoh allow a non-Egyptian to be in such a position of authority? We see God's providence all through Joseph's life. And so at the very end, right before Jacob slash Israel dies, he's going to bless Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you remember the story from Sunday school, he reaches out to put his hand on them. And again, there's very specifics. Like if you bless somebody with your right hand compared to your left, there was more blessing there. And he crosses and he puts his right hand on the younger son. And Joseph, thinking that his dad's this old and senile, said, hey, you got it mixed up, pops. Let me, let me. He's like, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. Leave me be. And he blesses, and he blesses Ephraim over Manasseh. And so the question is, then why is Ephraim left out of that? So a little more uh, Old Testament history. When going down the chronological timeline of Israel, they finally become a nation, and they have a king. And the first king of Israel is Saul, there we go, somebody got it, you get an A, good, A for effort, there we go. And then after Saul was, this is the interaction portion of the sermon, this is when you're allowed to talk and security team won't, you know, stun gun you. Um, after Saul was David, very good, and then after David was Solomon. And the, so Saul, David, Solomon, all rule for 40 years, again, that'll get you through Bible college, I promise. And then after Solomon, there was two guys Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And one of them didn't listen to some good advice, raised taxes, and it split the kingdom to a north with 10 tribes. All the kings for 19, 20 of them were horrible and evil. And then there's about 19 or 20 kings in the southern kingdom called Judah. Only about eight of them were really good, right? And so when that split happened, what we see is the tribe of Ephraim, they were kind of the head of that northern tribe during the split. So they were the ones encouraging the splits of the nation of Israel. And then what we also know about the tribe of Ephraim as we study through the Old Testament is they were really prone to fall into idol worship. Like, oh, there's Ephraim again falling into idol worship. There they go. They just worship anything that walks. And, and so some people, some scholars would say that's why they are not listed. And so you have some tribes not listed that normally were, and then we have a tribe that's normally not listed that is in Revelation, and that's the Levi, the tribe of Levi. And what's unique about them is there was actually 13 tribes. We just don't really call it. We say 12. Because there was one more group of people called the Levites, and they were the kind of the pastors of Israel, and they served in the temple as priests. And they didn't have an allotment of land when God was pouring that out, you know, giving out the allotment of a land and their portions. They didn't have a portion of land. They lived off the tithe and the offering of the other 12 tribes. Very similar, like 
That's how we as pastors, full-time vocationally, make our living is off the tithes and the offerings of the congregations in which we serve and lead. And so that's the Levites. Normally, they're not listed in, in the set of 12 when you would think of the 12 tribes of Israel, but here they are. And some scholars would say that they are included because the Levitical ceremonies are kind of done away with. They don't operate in those anymore, and so they kind of come back to a full standing. And then you have another missing tribe, Dan. Where is Dan? And Dan was the first tribe to establish idolatry in Israel. Some scholars would go so far to say that just as the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah, the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. Now, if they're right, that should give us a little bit of hope because a lot of times, especially around election time, we look at the opposing candidate and think, that has to be the Antichrist, right? (laughs) And I haven't even told you what political party I'm talking about because if we're going to look at both sides, they both kind of fit the bill if we're going to be real. And so who is that, this tribe of Dan and the Antichrist, some would believe to come out of that. Now, the unique thing is we're going to see another listing of the 12 tribes of Israel later when we talk about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And there's going to be, just like in the Old Testament, allotments of land given out to the 12 tribes. Dan and Ephraim are going to be listed there. Like, all right, Nick, what is the reason for the massive geek out? This passage strongly argues for the continuance of Israel as a nation. And we as the church are grafted into that. We're not Jewish by heritage, but we are by adoption. And this is just my own personal opinion. And so if we disagree, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I think one of the worst sins that we can commit as the church is to be anti-Semitic. And we do it in small little ways. When we talk about Jewish people being good with money or if we're trying to uh, negotiate a better deal on something, what's the phrase? We Jew them down. Understand that that's a Jewish Bible that we read. Those are Jewish promises that we are inherited and grafted into. Christ, who went to the cross, was Jewish. We are adopted into a Jewish faith, and so some of the worst things that we could be is anti-Semitic in that. And what's important is that we see that there's going to be a continuance of Israel as a nation in the future and for God's dealing with ethnic Jews, again, as his chosen people. Because not because Israel is so great, but because God promised. And so the same God that promised to Israel and being faithful to his promise, that's the same God that we serve. And so if we are going to attack God's faithfulness to Israel, how easy is it to attack God's faithfulness to us? Because God had covenants with Israel. Oh, he's not going to fulfill those with Israel. Then do we have the same lack of assurance with the covenant in the blood of Jesus that he has established with us then? Because if God's not faithful to Israel, is he not going to be faithful to us then? And that's where it comes into, it's an attack of God's character. If he's faithful to Israel, and there's promises through the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, that we're still waiting for the fulfillment of, it's an attack on God, because he is faithful, and he will stay true to his promises. So where Israel was put on hold because of the rejection of the Messiah, and he picked up the church, that mystery, once the church is raptured up, Now he steps back into Israel as his chosen people. And this is not an Old Testament thing. Read Romans chapter 11. 
Paul would say, if God doesn't have a plan for Israel, then who am I? Because Paul was Jewish. And so then he picks back up, and, and so when we read the Abrahamic covenant, clear back from like Genesis 15 to 17, which we'll geek out a lot more next year when we go through the book of Genesis, we hear that every family on earth will be blessed. Even in the tribulation, we see God upholding his covenant to Abraham to be a blessing through his lineage to every family on earth, and we even see this in the tribulation. Now there's a theological um, belief in Christianity that's called replacement theology, meaning that the church replaces all of those covenants that were given to Israel. But again, we can't fulfill those. And it's going to get really unique. Like if we hold to that, the millennial kingdom is going to be really difficult for us to walk through. And if we study Ezekiel, which we will when we get to the millennial kingdom, we'll see that God is going to operate through two programs. He still has a plan and a purpose for Israel, and then he will for us as Gentiles. And so we're going to see that program. But if we think that one is fulfilling and replacing the other, then we null and void major portions of God's word and his promises to humanity. And so you're like, wow, all that about the Jewish people? We could go on and on for it. But we see these 144,000 sealed, and what's their purpose? To share the gospel of Christ. See, even in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be missionary in its command, in its purpose, in its identity. They were always supposed to go out and engage people and show them how to approach a holy God. The problem is Israel kind of missed the boat. They thought, oh, we're God's chosen people. They should all want to be like us. And, and better yet, we'll just keep everybody at a distance because we're God's chosen people. And why would he want you Gentile people? They were racist. And it even infected the early church a little bit because Gentiles weren't allowed into the church until Acts 16. But when did the church start? Acts 2. So a lot of times people are like, we need to be an Acts 2 church where we're all giving everything and, and nobody's in need. And it's like, yeah, and they were also very racist and bigotry at, at the same time. That's not the fullness of what God had for Israel. They were always supposed to be missional. And that same mentality can infect the church pretty easily. We're saved. We're good people. We have high morals and values. We attend church on Sunday. I'm in life group. I serve my church. I tithe unto the Lord. Everything is, and I'm, everything's good and I'm above other people, and we, we got to hold them sinners back. We can't, be, we can't be seen, you know, being around people like that and integrating with people. Had a conversation this week with a Christian organization. They invited me to come speak to the board, which was uh, kind of scary on my end. I thought, here we go. I'm going to get in trouble. And I said, how cool would it be if this organization was known to hang out with the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes? Because isn't that who Jesus hung out with? But how quickly do we as the church ignore the command and the call that God has upon us to be his witnesses? Where at times we can fall into the same trap that Israel did. Oh, we're saved. God loves us so much more than these sinners. And we have to keep them sinners at a distance because you know, we, we, we don't want our kids, we don't want our family, we don't want to be associated with people like that. Just understand who Jesus would be hanging out with if he walked on the earth today. When we have that mentality, we sound far more like the Pharisees 
then we sound like the disciples that are trying to follow Jesus. And so that same slight failure can happen in us, just like it did with Israel. And so just as Israel was always supposed to be missional and very evangelistic and sharing the gospel of Jesus, he picks it back up in the tribulation, and that is the work of this 144,000. And we, we get to see then, as we move from this one group, we get to move to another group. And the, and the beautiful thing about that is we get to see the fruits of that ministry of the 144. Like, think about that for your life. Would you want to see that? Like if the Lord just kind of appeared to you and said, hey, you, you know, you got 30, 40 years left. You maybe got five, 10 years left. Or, hey, I'm actually here for you right now. Let's go. No. So imagine if the Lord appeared to you and said, do you want to see the fruit of your life and your ministry? Do you want to see the fullness of, of what you're going to do with your life? Like that'd be kind of cool in one breath, but super scary on the other. Like, did I fail? Did I fall apart? Did I hold fast? You know, we say things like that when we talk about evangelism, like imagine walking into heaven and getting to see all the people that would be there because of you, because you shared the love of Christ with them, that you shared the gospel with them. Like, imagine if you could see that now. In a sense, that's what we're seeing in Revelation 7. So not only do we see this one group of people that are sealed to be evangelists in the tribulation, now we get to see the fruits of that ministry. And what does he see? a great multitude that no one could number. There's some theologians want to say that these two groups of people are actually one, but one we can number and we know they're Jewish. The other one we can't even number and they come from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, which has always been God's heart. From the Old Testament, from the church today, even in the tribulation as God is pouring out his wrath, what does he want to see? A great multitude from every nation, all tribes, all people, all languages, which is to say there is no room in the heart of a believer for any sort of racism whatsoever because God has a heart for all people. And so for us to have that indifference with one another because our culture, our language, our skin color is different, that is not the heart of God. And I understand where we live. And to be very honest, I grew up with grandparents that loved the Lord, led me in, in what it meant to follow Jesus. And I know they grew up in a different generation, but you could hear some small undertones of that come out. Things that I would hear them say, it's like, you can't say that. And so we have to be aware we have to understand God's heart for people, not for a social justice issue, but for having the heart of Christ for the broken, lost, hurt world around us. We have to look at our own heart and understand where are we prone to fall into not having that same heart. And one of the issues, understanding God's heart. He has a heart for every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And so we see this great multitude and at first, John doesn't know who they are. See, he doesn't have trouble in other areas, right? Like before in chapter four and five, he sees the 24 elders around the throne. He has no problem identifying, oh yeah, that's a representation of the church. But then he sees this group of people and he's like, I don't know who this you are. And even one of those elders walks up to him and he says, hey, you know who you're looking at right here, right? He's like, actually, I don't. Who is this? And listen to what the elder said, verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation 
And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so these are tribulation saints, those who have come to faith through the work of those 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And they're coming out of the great tribulation. So what does that mean? Yeah, there was a spiritual deliverance because they put their faith and their trust in Christ. But there's also a physical deliverance that they were killed and brought out of the tribulation. And that's a weird thought that we have to have. See, a lot of times we're all about the spiritual deliverance. Yes, we want people that are lost, broken, separated from God to be delivered from that and to be in a, in a right relationship with God, to have that spiritual deliverance from being lost, sinner, under the wrath of God, as an enemy of God. Now they are a child of God. That is a spiritual deliverance, and that's what we want. But the moment we as the church start talking about a physical deliverance, now they just think we're crazy. And there's even a little bit of this in my own life. Like when I was diagnosed, I, I would tell people at the church that we are a part of, it's like, oh yeah, one day, like I'm gonna beat cancer. I'm gonna be delivered from this. And oh, amen, pastor, what great faith you have. And I would just smile and it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Either God's gonna deliver me through this cancer and I get to stay married to my wife and get to see my kids grow up or God is gonna deliver me from this cancer. I'll have a widow, I'll have orphans, but I won't have cancer. They don't like that. No, we want spiritual deliverance, but the idea that these tribulation saints, that it was a joy and a comfort for them to be delivered from the tribulation, that's this radical thinking. Because we hold so fast to our physical life and we hold on to this like there's no resurrection, there's no tomorrow, and this is all that counts. We would be at an exact conflict with Paul who was saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. We would lose sight that we have to understand that this physical world is not all that there is, that we actually, it's a spiritual world where there's a physical element, not the other way around. So many times I think we look, oh, it's a physical world, and then when we talk about Jesus, yeah, that's just a spiritual element about it. Even the battles that we are in today as the church, they're not physical battles, and so we shouldn't fight them the same way the world does. These are spiritual battles. And how do you fight spiritual battles? on your knees in prayer. Not through the words and, and arguing and fighting. We fight them through prayer. We fight them God's way because it's a spiritual battle that we're in. And so when we see this tribulation saints, when they're delivered from that, we would see that in our normal church culture. Oh, why would God kill them? Why would he allow them to be killed? Because he doesn't want them to persevere in the tribulation. The tribulation is for God pouring out his wrath onto the world that has rejected him and onto those who have rejected him. There's no place for those that have put their faith in Christ to endure that. That the deliverance from that, that is a good thing. And, and it's hard because we, Scripture tells us a lot about what God expects from us on this side of glory, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We get that. We do give a glimpse of the future, what's to come, the hope and the glory that we have to be with Jesus. But the transition part, <laughs> Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot on that bad boy. And that's where a lot of our questions are going to be. Is there a white tunnel? Am I going to see? Am I going to hear? What, what's, gonna, what's that going to look like? The best that I think that we really have, honestly, is what Paul would say, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. As my pastor used to say, my last breath on this earth 
Once I exhale that last breath, I'm gonna inhale my first breath in the glory of God to be absent from the body, present from the Lord. Do I know how it's gonna go down? No. I mean, I have my wishes. I have my desires of how my life would end. And I'm a little bit morbid than most, so let's just go down that rabbit trail. <laughs> we as Christians always say that we want our lives to be lived out for the glory of God, amen? Our death is just another part of our life. And I want even my death to be done for the glory of God. That's a scary prayer, because I don't know what that means. Hopefully, I'm in bed, sleeping, and I just pass out. I would love that. But when we look, do we not see that the blood of the church is almost the most fertile ground that we see revival happening? And so, Lord, I want my death to be even for the glory of God. And those are weird, radical ideas that we think of Christianity, but if we understand who Christ is and we read his word, that's not radical Christianity. That's just biblical Christianity. That's just normative, biblical Christianity. And we see this even in the tribulation saints, delivered from, not just spiritually, but physically. Even, I pointed out, Pastor Sean, first service. Sean lost his dad a couple weeks ago. And his dad given his life to the Lord. We knew he was saved. He, and in those last moments, Sean had to look at his dad and say, it's okay to go. It's okay to be delivered from this. Even now, if you walk up for prayer after service, and I hope you do, right? We would love to pray with you and for you, you know. But if you walk up and say, hey, I'm dealing with, and you name out a bunch of health issues, I'll absolutely pray for your healing. But I'll also say, if that's your will, Lord, if not, we just want your will to be done. I had one uh, gentleman once, not here, another church, walks up to me, says, can you pray for my grandma? Now, he was already looking, you know, a little south of like 55. So the fact that you still have a grandma alive, like, that's a miracle alone to the Lord, right? Can you pray for my grandma? Sure, what's going on? Well, she's 109 and she's sick. She's not sick, she's dying. Come, let her... <laughs> He goes, I don't know what I'm going to do without her. You better figure it out real quick, buddy. <laughs> like, I love you, and I'm just going to preach righteousness to you, but you better figure that one out. Would you pray that she'd get better? No, she's not even asking for that. <laughs> like, something's going to take us out. That's why I keep eating cheeseburgers, right? Why am I trying to extend my painful life on earth, right? My wife's like, you just need to eat better and you start working out. Why? So I have to live in misery longer? You're keeping me from glory of being with my Lord and Savior? Behind me, Satan, you know? It's just... <laughs> but if our hope is in Christ, and if the same Spirit that raised him from the dead now dwells in us, if the resurrection of Christ is a first fruits unto us, sounds like normal biblical Christianity, and so we see this great multitude. Yeah, they're killed for their faith. And even just reading the first six seals that we went through, that's gonna be a lot to go through. And thank the Lord that they are delivered from that and they're standing before the throne, which is different than the 24 elders. The 24 elders are sitting around the throne, but here this multitude is standing before the throne. They're clothed in white, which is a symbol of their righteousness and their 
purity, say that right, and then they're holding palm branches, which is symbolizing their victory and their joy. I mean, think of when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, because they were laying down palm branches, shouting out Hosanna, which means save now. So they're dressed in white and they have the victory of Christ that they were saved from and they were saved to a relationship with him. And so when we now look at, uh, we get kind of a glimpse of the father and the son, but look what it says about them. That therefore, so because of all of that, that's what that word therefore, it is therefore, reason everything that we just read, they are before the throne of God. So this is God the Father, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Hey, the, the, the tribulation was still going on for a few more years. You want to live that out, or do you want to serve God the Father in his temple day and night? Well, let me think about that one. I don't know. Let me... Well, what are the other trumpets and the uh, bowls are like? Oh yeah, half the population's gonna die. Sounds like I'm serving in the temple. Sounds like that's where I wanna be. And so God the Father on the throne, he shelters them with his presence. He's gonna be their provision. There's no longer any hunger or thirst. He's gonna be their protection. Now again, these are tribulation saints, which is not us. So what's it matter who God is to them? Because we know scripture, we know the character of God does not change. And so as we study this, we get to see the character of God. Because if he was faithful to his promises to Israel, and he's faithful here to these tribulation saints to be their shelter, their provision, their protection, even for us right now, doesn't that mean that God would still be our shelter? That his presence would shelter us, that he would be our provision that he would be our protection. He doesn't change on who he's dealing with. He is who he says he is. That's what it means, the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And whatever you need, that's what I am. I will be your shelter. I will be your provision. I will be your protection. So even though we are not gonna be the tribulation saints, and even though we as the church are not gonna live through the tribulation and understand that, we can grow closer in our understanding and knowledge of who God the Father is. Because if he was faithful then, and we understand he will be faithful to them, how many times do we doubt sometimes God's faithfulness? And we need that to be strengthened in us. That's why the book of Revelation is a book of hope and encouragement because we see the character of God. And then there's the Lamb, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the throne. So you have God the Father on the throne, then you have the Lamb in the midst of the throne. And what does he say? The Lamb in the midst will be there shepherd. So that takes us right back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It takes us to John. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is who Jesus is, that he wants to shepherd you in your life. He did that with Israel. He's going to do this with tribulation saints, even in the presence of God. He's going to continue to shepherd them. But how many times do we, do we doubt and lack understanding of God's Jesus' heart for us even now. Uh, he doesn't love me. He's not leading and guiding me. He doesn't want to shepherd me. I just feel like a lost sheep running out in the field all by myself. I feel like I have no one and I feel like I'm nothing. We, we struggle with those doubts. But again, coming back and understanding who Christ really is. He's a shepherd for your life. The rod and thy staff, they comfort you. They don't beat you. They comfort you. 
So at times you need the rod to kind of poke and prod you to get you moving. We can get kind of stagnant and just start kind of bobbing and weaving in our faith and we're not really doing anything. We need a good kick in the pants every once in a while. Because the rod and the staff was actually one, one item. The rod was one side and the staff was the other side with a hook. And the hook was needed because we are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love is what we sing in that old hymn. And that staff, he would hook us around the hook of the shepherd would hook a sheep around the neck and pull him back into the fold. And how many times are we prone to want to wander away from God? And then he hooks us around our neck with his love and his grace and his mercy and says, no, no, no. Whatever you're running after, whatever little, little you know, distraction that you're looking at, that's not worth it. Stay in the fold. Stay with me. Listen to my voice. And a good shepherd, the sheep, know his voice. And so Christ is our shepherd. He's a guide to life, which is kind of a little bit of an oxymoron because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he's guiding us. Where? Unto himself. The Lord will not guide you somewhere apart from him. That is not his desire for your life. He wants to guide you in a closer walk with him. Now, you may feel that, but we have to understand that it is a redemptive impossibility to be alone. He's always with us. He tells us, go and make disciples, baptize, teaching them, everything that I commanded, and at the very end, the part that we sometimes forget, and I am with you. So we might feel that, but that's what we have to understand. Our feelings are lying to us. It is a redemptive impossibility, knowing that we have been redeemed and restored by the blood of Jesus, our faith and our trust in him, he will never leave us, never forsake us, that he is with us. So what happens when we feel that way? We have to realign our thoughts, our hearts to the truth of who Christ is, that he is a guide unto life. And not only is he the guide, he is the life that he wants us to have. John 10, 10, I came to give life and life scarcely, to give life somewhat-ishly, I made that word up, I came to give life and life abundantly. Not just this side of glory, but also that side of glory. And last, he is a comfort. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That whatever pain, struggle, whatever frustrated, whatever it is that we endure on this side of glory, Christ will be our comfort. That when we stand before him, there's nothing that we have dealt through in life. There is no sorrow too deep. There's no grief that is too great that the God of all creation does not understand. And I, under, and I am not naive to think that some of us are carrying some serious burdens of sorrow and grief. The loss of loved ones, spouses, the loss of kids, the loss of opportunity. So many of us battle and struggle with that. And we allow that emotional to expand and infiltrate other areas of our lives. We have to understand that Christ is our comfort. That whatever he leads us in, whatever we endure on this side, there is a purpose for the pain that he has us walk through. Because his goal isn't our happiness. His goal is our holiness. His goal isn't our comfort, but our character. He doesn't want an absence of issues, 
So we have to even understand that word comfort in a biblical context. It's not the absence of pain and suffering. A comfort is in the presence of Jesus. That's what he wants for each and every one of us. That's why he says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Like they Come upon me. Learn from me. Walk with me. Even that's why he puts us in a community of faith as we're walking through that 21 days of impact. What's it say? Carry each other's burdens. So if you see a brother or sister in the Lord and they're burdened, that is upon you to shoulder that burden with them. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. They're the one destroying their lives. That's your brother and sister in Christ. And you're commanded by Christ to bear each other's burdens in that. Walk with each other. That you don't need to feel alone again in that sorrow and that suffering and in that grief, that pain, that frustration. Get accountability. Get people in your life that love and care for you. Make space in your life for others. Oh, I'm just too busy. I don't have time for that. You don't have time for the Lord then. Life groups isn't just a, a ministry thing that we do. It's the very essence of our faith that we are meant to live this out together. We just slap a cool little title on it and try to hype it up. It, this is call it what it is. It's the trophy of student ministries that we have to put food with it, we have to put excitement with it, we have to do all these fun things so that we will walk in obedience to what the Lord would have for us. It makes sense with students. I was a student pastor. You try to, try to bring enough funds so they can get the goodness of, of what the Lord is and what it is meant to have Christian community. It's the same thing we have to do with adults. Why? Because we're stubborn. If you don't think you are, go into the bathroom, look in the mirror. You're stubborn. Just look in the mirror, you'll find it. But sometimes we have to doctor it up, make it sound good and glitzy and shiny and okay, and then we'll be a part of it. No, we, it is a biblical precedence. We need one another and we cannot live out our faith alone. So closing, looking at verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Very reminiscent of Psalm 3.8, even Jonah 2. Salvation is key. We focused on it last week, and I think every week we should. Salvation, it's purposed by the Father. This is his design. You know, he has every right to throw out every seal, every trumpet, every bowl, absolutely decimate all of the population on earth during the tribulation. But instead, there's a rhythm to it. He orchestrates it in a way not to heighten his wrath, but to give space and time for his mercy. Because even as he's pouring out his wrath, there are those coming to faith in Jesus in the tribulation. And it's the same even today for us in the church. Why does God allow so much evil? Why doesn't he do something about it? It's the very thing that we're studying. God doing something about the evil on his earth. Well, why doesn't he do anything yet? Because he's patiently enduring the evil of our world because at the same time, people are coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. Yes, we should look forward to the coming of the Lord, but we should also at the same time, Lord, give us time because there's still loved ones and our family and our lives, our friends that do not know you. 
And I know if you come now and you shore up all the events of human history, I know what that means for your eternity. And we live in that tension where we want Christ to take us, to be raptured up, to be the end and shore up all of this evil. But at the same time, Lord, keep giving us time to be the church, to share the gospel because we know there are those that do not have a relationship with you. We live in that tension. And so salvation is purposed by the Father. It is accomplished by the Son through the cross and the empty grave. And when we see these two lines, we hear about the Father, we hear about the Son, but where's the Holy Spirit? He's still pouring out himself in salvation where we have this great multitude that God is still is who he says he is. And even in this tribulation, as he's pouring out his wrath, what we see far more is his grace and his mercy a great multitude that no one could number. We have to understand that the great tribulation is also a great revival. And we as the church, we pray for revival. We want so many people to come to the Lord. We have that desire. And one of the greatest revivals that we'll see will be in this tribulation time. And verse 14 tells us, they have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb, which is just a very poetic way to say they've put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They've washed their robes white. The question before us as the church this morning, have you? Are you still walking around in dingy, dirty, sinful clothing? Now I'm not talking about the brands that you're wearing, even though there's probably some precedence to that. Used to be an old hymn that we would sing in the little Baptist church. I'd sit fourth row over here with my grandparents. Every other line, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Simple question. Don't let your church attendance, don't let your church activity, don't let how much money you throw in black boxes deceive you to think, that's what I need to do. And I don't need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's kind of a crazy thought. What does that mean to be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Go back to Exodus. That the blood of the lamb was applied that the angel of death would pass over. Have you applied the blood of Jesus to your life? Have you put your faith and your trust in him? And as we continue studying studying Revelation, it should be a hope and encouragement to us to be sure of our salvation and then the call and the command and the identity of us as believers. Am I sure about others' salvation? As I was meeting with that organization, we were talking about, do we, should we do events for the church and unifying the church? Should we do events for the lost? I said, reach the lost. I know I'm going to heaven. Reach the lost. Use your efforts because we know what their eternity awaits. Reach the lost. And the idea, well, what if they reject us? Salvation belongs unto the Lord. They're not rejecting you. You're just the messenger. They're rejecting the Lord. The faithfulness comes in. Will we be the hands and the feet of Jesus? Will we share that good news unto others? That's where faithfulness comes in. So imagine us as Calvary Chapel, right? Calvary Chapel, Lake of the Ozarks. We get this fire of the Holy Spirit in us, and we are out. We are, we, we're trying to put the 144,000 evangelists, you know, like we're trying to go to competition with them. Like, oh yeah, you're going to get a great multitude? We're going to get a great multitude. Imagine if we had that. 
And we, we storm out of here just spitting fire of the grace and the mercy of Christ. But nobody comes to the Lord. Not one soul. Let's just say that happens. What would Christ say to us when we stand before him? Well done, good and faithful servants. Our faithfulness comes in in our obedience to Jesus, not in the success or the failure of somebody accepting or rejecting the gospel. That is between them and the Lord. But how will they know if they have not heard? How will they hear if someone has not sense? And how will they send if they will not believe in for it themselves? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We get to be the best gift givers like we talked about last week. Not because of who we are. We have the greatest gift. And for some reason, God has entrusted us jars of clay with the greatest treasure. Understand the gospel was never, never from Old Testament Israel to even now into the tribulation. The gospel is never meant to stop at you, but always to flow through you.